0: I am John Johnson, I'm not Gunnar Hansen. Pastor Gunnar will be back very shortly. Um, I don't see you scheduled for any other breaks for a while. so You're, you're back on. Okay. And uh, we're going to go ahead and push through with um, the life of Abraham. We're going to enter Genesis 20 today. Um, recall where we've been. We saw the creation of the world. We saw what God did. We saw that there's four major characters in Genesis. Um, All of this is revelatory towards the seed of the woman spoken about in Genesis 3. And uh, Abraham is one of the big characters in Genesis. And we're coming towards the end of Abraham. And I think, no premature announcements, I think after we're done with Abraham, we might just uh, hit a New Testament book for a few weeks and then get back to Genesis. You know, Genesis, you know, it's a lot of chapters. It's a lot to cover. So I like to push through things. But um, it doesn't always work for everybody. So uh, before we get into this, I'm going to place my mirror. And uh, you think that's a clever uh, ploy, but the truth is I'm I'm in this study this week, and uh, it beat me up. It beat me up. You know, you always live the lesson when you have a chance to teach the Bible, and I want to be preaching to myself primarily. So as we open Genesis 20, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we're about to enter the Word of God, which you have memorialized for us, for your purposes, Uh, events that probably took place, what, 3,400 years ago, and they're preserved for us, and they're people. People don't change, and certainly God doesn't change. So you, Lord God, please reveal yourself to us today. You know the curriculum of events you've placed each of us in this week, so that we might have to Reach out to you, so we might have to wrestle with ourselves. So we might have to uh, take steps, and so that this lesson could, in fact, be meaningful. So we trust that you will grow us. us. I pray pray that your would be the the king over even my words today. That they be your words. You'd open ears and shut ears as appropriate. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, Abraham should know better. Great man of faith, but he tends to stumble a little bit. Let's go ahead and read the first few verses of Genesis twenty. Uh, starting in verse 1. We use uh, the 95 edition of the NAS here because Gunnar likes that. I don't care what version you use, but that's what I'm reading from. Now Abraham sojourned from Hebron toward the land of Negev, and he settled between Kedesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, uh, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not not himself say to me, she is my sister, and, and she herself say, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called his servants and told these things in their hearings, and the men were greatly frightened. Didn't we read something similar to this back in Genesis 12? Remember that? Some people think it's the same story. Uh, back in Genesis 12, Abraham is down in Egypt, and he tells Pharaoh, it's my sister, and it's not my wife. Um, and if, if, uh, if we look at this passage of Scripture purely from a doctrinal perspective, we see again that God keeps those to whom he has made promises. God takes care of those uh, frail human beings to whom he's made promises. And still, it seems obvious that this this one event, out of the more than 100 years of unrecorded events, that this one event is memorialized uh, for us to showcase that uh, an example of what a friend of God might in fact do. So there's practical lessons for us. You know, Abraham, the guy who was all in, stumbles again, but he recovers. He stumbles and recovers. And for those of you who have said that you are all in, remember we had that thing, who's all in? And some of you were so you have to raise your hand. Um, you found out, have you found out that you've stumbled since you've done that? Have you stumbled in your walk? In anticipation of your stumbles along the journey of faith, God has memorialized this event today for you. That's why it's here, because he knew you'd stumble, and it's kind of okay. Careful when I say that. If you did not know the story, if you were a sterile reader of this story right now, you didn't know Abraham. You read this chapter for the first time. Which of these two men would you say, in fact, is the believer, Abimelech or Abraham? Well, sure, not Abraham. He's the liar. And if Abraham, uh, and if Abimelech, uh, Abraham uh, did not show. Uh, did not show um, integrity, certainly Abimelech did show integrity. Abimelech uh, responds rightly. If anybody reveals excellent character, it's Abimelech and not Abraham, the friend of God. And but before we draw some unwarranted conclusions, take time to consider the facts revealed in this event. Abraham's failures were tragic. But from them, we learned some valuable lessons to help us who, in fact, walk by faith. You see, the fact is, believers do sin. Believers do sin. It's just a reality. This chapter would be an embarrassment, except for one thing. The Bible tells the truth about people. It doesn't hide any facts. doesn't sugarcoat things. And that includes God's people. It does not hide the fact that Noah got drunk and laid in the cave exposed that Moses lost his temper, that David committed adultery and even plotted the death of one of his generals to try to cover it up, that Peter denied the Lord three times, and that Barnabas actually had a lapse of, uh, a lapse in the false doctrine in Galatians 2. These are all recorded for us. God tells the truth. He tells what really happened. And these things are recorded not to encourage us to sin, but to warn us a, away from sin to warn us away from sin. I always used to hate teaching this stuff to high schoolers. Because my high schoolers inevitably would say, hey, if it worked for them and they got away with it, I can do it too. And that's not what God wants you to see here. After all, if these great men of faith disobey the Lord, then we ordinary saints had better be very, very careful. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10. So why did Abraham sin? What's going on here? Well, first, Abraham had a sin nature. He's a sinner. God justified Abraham by faith. We saw that back in chapter 15, verse 6. Uh, Abraham was a man of faith. His his, his, uh, belief caused um, him to be justified. But he still had a sinful nature, just like you and I. God gave him a new name from Abram to Abraham But he did not give him or change the old nature. He did not give him a new nature at that time. The old nature still clings on. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You've wrestled with it. Uh, First John 1 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now because of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the work of Christ on the cross, believers can have victory over the old nature. You can make right choices. But victory is not automatic. We must walk by the Spirit if we hope to overcome temptation. We must actively walk. And Gunner's going to have a class on what walking by the Holy Spirit is. Uh, make a schedule for that, Gunner. Okay. It takes act, it, it's, it's not a passive activity. It's active. You people who have trained children know this. You've got to teach your kids to be active about being good. And that leads to the second consideration. Abraham moved into enemy territory. I'm not saying he's wrong in his move, but it's just a fact. He moved um, into enemy territory. After, after living at Hebron, which means fellowship, by the way, lived there for perhaps 20 years, he then decided to go to the land of the Philistines. Now, Gerar is just within the Philistine borders, but it's still a dangerous place to be. Just like us, Abraham lived in a world that does not honor God. He gets it. We're in the same place. And perhaps it was the emotional trauma from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. After all, these are people that he knew, and they're gone. Perhaps it was the smoldering tar pits from the destruction that had a very unpleasant odor as the evening winds blew over them for months and months and months living next to that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah valley. Whatever his whatever his motives to move, the decision brought challenges. And true, Abraham did not go down to Egypt again. He, he stayed within the confines of the promised land. But he moved to a place that was a dangerous position. And Jesus tells us, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Abraham's in a dangerous spot. And this is something each of us have to consider as we choose our work environment. Our retirement location or the place we're going to send our kids for school. What kind of environment are we entering? What's likely to, what is the likely impact of the location that we choose? Is there a greater chance that I will influence people for the Lord or that they will influence me away from the Lord? It's something to think about. And after, after arriving in Gerar, Abraham began to walk by sight not by faith. For he began to be afraid. Look at verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Boy, he's eloquent. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that has caused you to do this thing. The text is quite G-rated, and you have to read into it what was going on that caused this kind of disturbance. They couldn't have children while Abraham was there. God was not allowing them to have children. Something was going on. And Abraham said, well, verse 11, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place, and, and they will kill me because of my wife. Listen, fear of man and faith in God cannot dwell together in the same heart at the same time. They are mutually exclusive from one another. Uh, Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. You can't have it both ways. Every day is a choice. Abraham forgot that his God was the almighty God who could do anything and who had promised who had made promises to Abraham and Sarah. He didn't need to worry about this. But how many things do we not need to worry about? And we reflect the same thing. Listen, while God's promises are sure things, we cannot fully embrace many, many blessings of God when we refuse to deal with our repetitive sin. The basic cause of Abraham's failure was the sad fact that he and Sarah failed to judge the sin they had committed back in Egypt. They had admitted their sin to Pharaoh. They confessed their sin to God. But the fact is that the sin surfaced again, and it indicates that they did not judge the sin or forsake the sin. Proverbs 28 says it this way, He who conceals his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. But I confessed my sins? Yeah, but did you really mean, did you really mean to do something about it? There's a difference. In Abraham's case, the sin had actually grown worse. And now Sarah shares in the lie as well. Again, chapter 20, verse 5. Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. She's telling a lie also. A home kept together by a lie is in really bad shape. And here we see the real problem. The real problem with John Johnson. This is my problem. And feel free to fill in your own name if you choose to. I am not serious about my sin. A lighthearted admission of sin is not the same as brokenhearted confession. Psalm 51 says it this way. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When was the last time you were truly, truly broken in spirit over your own sin? If our attitude is right, we will hate our sins. We will loathe ourselves for having sin and despise the very memory of our sins. Now that does not mean that we let the memory of sins beat us up. There is a difference. There's a distinction. 2 Corinthians 7.10, a memory verse, by the way, says it this way. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Conviction from the Holy Spirit is given to save us and to heal us, not to beat us up. If the memory of some past sin keeps resurfacing in your mind over and over again, that's from the enemy. That's not from the Lord. That's a tool of Satan to keep you down, keep you always feeling, woe is me. But still, the people who remember their sins with pleasure and relive them again in their mind for enjoyment have never truly judged their sin. They've never really seen how sinful their sin really is. And that's what we're talking about here. Can anybody else relate, or am I alone here? Is it just me? Hedges are not repentance. Hedges are not repentance. You see, for many of us, rather than dealing with our sin, we build this environment that makes us safe from the struggle with, and really the public consequences of, our sin. We don't want those consequences, and and this may appear to be wise. A, a, a former drunkard may keep away from bars. That makes sense. And a person who is a chronic gambler might choose to not live in Valley Center next to four casinos. That seems to make sense. And and a womanizer may choose to work and live with only men and keep away from women entirely. And while hedges may seem valley, valid safety nets, there's a difference between a hatred of sin and a mere hatred of the consequences of my sin. And that difference will become evident when one moves away from their safe environment, from their hedges, like Abram did. When they venture out on that business trip, a vote in the hotel room. When they move out of their parents' house. Or in Abraham's case, when he moved away from Hebron, a safe place. Abraham's move made it apparent that he still feared the opinion of men guilty as charged. It became apparent that over time, they had in fact minimized the sin. Abraham and Sarah had convinced themselves that they were not really telling a lie. The Bible tells us that. Verse 12. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. It's only a half-truth, and and half-truths aren't really outright lies, are they, right? Well, wrong. They're actually worse. Because in a half-truth, there's just enough fact to make it plausible, but just enough deception to make it dangerous. Abraham's move not only revealed his continued fear of men over God, but also it revealed his blame of God. He has a poor God concept. Look at verse 13. And it came about... When God caused me to wander from my father's house, God made me wander. This is God's fault. That I said to her, show me kindness, and wherever we go, go, say he's my brother. You see, it's God's fault. It kind of sounds like Adam back in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Genesis 3.12, the man said to God, The woman who you gave me to be with, she gave me the forbidden fruit, and I ate. When we think we've, we've ditched the public consequences of our sin, we, we tend to think we, we got away with it. I mean, really, do you really feel like you've gotten busted for every one of your sins? No, absolutely not. We dodged the bullet. But the consequences of sin are revealed in both broken relationships with others and worse yet, in our damaged view of who God is. We begin to entertain some untruths about God. And while the truth will set you free, untruth thinking always results in bondage. A right view of God is essential if we're to break the chains of bondage that have plagued us, some of us, for a lifetime. Always start with a right view of God if you want freedom. Now, believers do sin, But that does not disannul their faith or destroy their salvation. That's not an issue here. Though it may discredit their testimony, Abraham was still a child of God, and even though uh, his witness for the Lord was probably greatly weakened at this point. However, Abimelech was in a more dangerous position than Abraham, for Abimelech was under the sentence of death. Abimelech was apparently more serious than Abraham about making the situation right. Good for him. Verse 14, Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and he restored uh, his wife Sarah to him. And he said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. (laughs) Just away from me. To Sarah he said, Behold, I give you your brother a thousand pieces of silver to vindicate the offense towards you. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and his wife, and his maids, so that they bore children. A lot was going on we don't know about. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You see, Abimelech was a man of integrity. And when God spoke to him, he obeyed. He had many fine qualities. He's a good dude. But he was not a believer. And therefore, he was a dead man. Ephesians 2 puts it this way and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Abimelech's genuine efforts at covering his sin did not make him right with God. Even people with apparent high moral values need a genuine faith in God For eternal salvation. Everyone must choose to put their faith in Jesus or they're lost. And this is not to minimize the enormity of Abraham's sin. We'll deal with that. For believers should not do what Abraham did. But Abraham and Abimelech had two different standings before God. One was saved and the other was lost. And in spite of his disobedience, Abraham was accepted before God, but Abimelech was rejected and under divine condemnation. God chastened Abraham. God condemned Abimelech, ultimately. Now, when believers sin, they suffer. Charles Spurgeon said, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. Isn't that lovely? When we deliberately disobey God, We suffer both from the consequences of our sins and from the chastening of the hand of God because he loves us. Unless we repent and submit. If you're under the chastening hand of God, repent quick. You can minimize the consequences. God in his grace will forgive our sins, but God in his sovereignty must allow sin to produce a sad harvest. There's always a result. uh, Gosh, read Psalm 32 or Psalm 51 uh, to see what happened to David both physically and spiritually because he would not repent and confess his sin before the Lord. i leave that to you. It only took a few seconds for Abraham to tell a lie, but that lie was more than mere words. The lie became a seed that was planted and grew and brought forth bitter fruit. God hates lies, Proverbs 6. He is the God of truth, Deuteronomy 32. The Spirit is the Spirit of Truth, John 14. The word is the word of truth, James 1. You get it. So what did one lie cost Abraham? Well, to begin with, it cost him his character. One man said, the purpose of life is the building of character through truth. Amen. But God is not just God is not just saving souls and taking people to heaven. Wouldn't that be cool? You put your trust in God the next second you're there. It don't work that way. He is making saved people more like Jesus Christ and thereby glorifying himself. Abraham stopped asking what is right and he began asking, what's safe? What's safe? And this led to his downfall. He lost his testimony. How could Abraham talk to his pagan neighbors about the God of truth when he himself has told such a bold-faced lie and they all knew it? Lot lost his witness in Sodom Abraham lost his witness in Gerar. Someone has said, a bad man's example has little influence over good men, but a bad example of a good man has enormous power for evil. And what has the media done whenever a Christian bigwig has fallen, right? Everybody, aha, aha. Imagine how humiliated Abraham was when Abimelech called him in. He confronted him, he rebuked him it's hard enough to submit to someone in the church when they tell you you did something wrong. But when, when a non-believer calls you in and, and rightfully tells you you blew it, it's hard. You have done things to me that should not be done. Boy, those words must have cut deep. Christians must be careful how they relate to those who are outside the faith. We're careful with each other here, but those outside, it's important that we pay our debts. That we're courteous that we actually let them go in front of us. He lost his ministry, for instead of being a source of blessing, uh, Genesis 12, Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and you shall be a blessing to all nations. He wasn't a blessing to Abimelech, was he? No babies are born during, uh, during Abraham's sojourning in Gerar. Now when a child of God gets out of the will of God, the discipline of God usually follows. Jonah caused a storm that almost wrecked the ship, right? Achan, if you recall the story, brought a defeat to the armies, Joshua 7. And David brought sorrow to his own family. Second Second Samuel, just read the entire book. Oh, man. David was a character. Abraham almost lost Sarah and Isaac in that day. There's question as to whether she was pregnant with Isaac yet during this event or not. In that day, a king had the right to take into his harem any single woman who pleased him, and and then, of course, he would do whatever came natural with that woman afterwards. What the king did threatened God's plan of salvation. It threatened the plan for the seed of the woman, and the Lord had to take action to protect both Sarah and Isaac, and he did so. And perhaps one of the saddest consequences of Abraham's sin was Isaac's repetition of that sin several chapters later, chapter 26, he tells the same sort of lie. It's, a, it, it's sad when our sins affect outsiders, but it's sadder still when our sins are duplicated by our own family. When believers sin, they are disciplined by God until they come to a place of repentance and confession. And for some of you all, takes a moment, but for some it takes decades, 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 and God pursues them. This discipline is not enjoyable, but it is profitable, and in the end, it produces happiness and holiness to the glory of God. Hebrews 12 tells us this. uh, Hebrews 12, 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Okay. And now the good news. Sinning believers can be forgiven and restored. I didn't want to just quit in Genesis 20 because it's just a sad end. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit in a second. Now, while God did not defend Abraham's sin, he did defend Abraham and so controlled the circumstances that, his servant was, uh, that God's servant was not completely defeated. In fact, God called Abraham a prophet. And he made it clear that Abraham's intercession was the only thing that stood in the way uh, between Abimelech and death. The fact that God answered Abraham's prayer for Abimelech is evidence that, uh, that Abraham uh, came to, confessed his sin and became, if you will, right with God. I believe Psalm 66 supports that. God does not reject his children when they sin any more than a parent rejects a disobedient son or daughter. Abraham was justified by faith and had had right standing before God. Justification does not change. We are accepted in Jesus Christ no matter what we are in ourselves. Of course, the fact that we are justified Before God means that we should have a changed life. James says this, faith without works is dead. But our position in Christ, our justification, is not altered by our practices on this earth. That's good news. Now the important thing is that we deal with our sins humbly and honestly, confess them to God, Judge them and forsake them and claim his promises of forgiveness. First John 1, 9 and many more. Abraham and Sarah, I believe, had made a new beginning. So let me turn your attention to the rest of the story. Turn the page to Genesis verse, uh, chapter 21. And we're going to skip most of it and just go up to verse 22. Jump way far ahead. The rest of the story. Gunner's going to fill you in on the first half of Genesis uh, chapter 21 where Isaac is born uh, in a future date. But we don't want to miss the contrast today, the contrast of what we care about. How are we, Christians who have stumbled, to rebuild godly purpose in the places in which we dwell? How are we to fix this? Well, a couple of points from Abraham. First, we have to commit or, or take a stand, if you will. We, we have to vow, if you will, to do rightly. Look at uh Genesis twenty-one, verse twenty-two. Now it came about, some years later, I interject, at, at that time, that Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. That's a good thing. Now therefore, swear to me, here by God, that you will not deal falsely with me, and that hurts, or with my offspring, or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that you have shown we have shown to you, you shall show to me uh, and the land to which uh, you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear it. I, I commit. I, I will do rightly. Sounds good. Amen. As many as four years have probably passed since the events of chapter 20. And during that time, it is evident that God had blessed uh, Abraham and Sarah. Whenever, whenever a believer is restored to fellowship with the Lord, God can once again bless them. God can once again pour out his blessings. The purpose of discipline is restoration. The purpose of restoration is ministry and blessing. We're here for a purpose. And not only was Abraham's wealth increasing, but Isaac had been born, probably about four years old, and this miracle son must have been a leading topic of conversation with those around. Hey, how those old people have that baby? It's the talk of the town. The fact that he wanted assurance of Abraham's fidelity indicates the patriarch's deception probably still stung. Abimelech was no fool. They wanted assurance that Abraham would play fair with them because he was such a powerful man. Remember, when he, when he was in the battle of the four kings, he had you know, hundreds of, of trained troops. So what a testimony. God is with you in all that you do. Abraham did not permit one lapse in faith to cripple him for all time. He got right with God and made a new beginning. Proverbs twenty four says it this way: Though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. If you've blown it, get back up, get back up. If you stumbled, get right with God and get back up, and do it instantly. You don't have to have times I'll be grovel for seven days and whip myself. No, get back up. You know that when Abraham lived in Hebron, he allied, he allied himself with some local leaders. Recall the neighbors that joined him to rescue Lot uh, against the Battle of the Four Kings? He dealt with pagan people. He he got along with people. There's no problem with entering into agreements with Abimelech. It's okay. Um, it did not compromise Abraham's testimony. The Bible warns us to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Second uh, Corinthians 6. But that does not mean that we have no dealings with people in the world. God's people cooperate with different people at different times for different purposes. You do it every day. We have to be discerning as believers to know how far to let it go and when to draw lines. Christians are called to be in the world but not of the world. This is the way it goes. We are called to we are not called to just communal living. Let's just live with Christians and push everybody out. It doesn't work that way, folks. It should be noted that a failure to commit is a is chronic in the American church today. Not here at GBC, but it's actually chronic. Trying to get people to do things is hard. Let me ask you, do you have trouble? Do you have trouble both committing and following through in your commitments? Something to think about. So after committing, I'll do it, sure. Abraham takes a stand and actually calls out Abimelech on a problem. Look at verse 25. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because Of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. Wow, I don't know when that happened, but it sure must have happened. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear it until today. He's saying, Whoa, first I heard of it. Reproving is part of honest interplay. He commits, I'll be part of your I'll be part of the community, but he puts it on the table: here's a problem. Abraham could have been stifled by the memory of the bonehead thing that he did and say, well, I just want to get along, I'll acquiesce to this, I won't bring anything up. But he speaks up for what is right. He gets it off his chest, and the issue does not fester. It's been dealt with. Now, water is still a very precious commodity in the Middle East and in Valley Center, well, Now we have various methods of, of uh, irrigation, but back in that day they had to dig wells, and they had to guard their wells, otherwise people would take them away, or enemies might fill them up. And clearly some of Abimelech's servants had seized uh, Abraham's well, so the treaty of four years ago wasn't really working, hadn't done much good. So Abraham did the right thing, he confronted his neighbor with the facts. And Abimelech says, I, I didn't know about it. Did Abimelech know? We don't know, only God knows. But let me ask you, Do you find it a challenge to go face-to-face and to express in a positive way what's bugging you? You know, some families are, are just crippled by the things we don't talk about. Oh, it got quiet just then. Well, that's not good. That's not good. It's so much easier to go behind the back and talk about these things than it is to simply go face to face. And next, Abraham goes beyond mere words. Verse 27, Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Now, this is that contractual ceremony that Gunner spoke about back in Genesis 15. They kill the animals, slice them through one on the other, they walk between them, and they're essentially saying, if I don't fulfill this contract, may God do to us this much and more if I don't do this sort of thing. It's a serious matter. And still, Abraham takes it a step further, something we don't see anywhere else. Verse 28. Then, aside from that ceremony, Abraham set aside <clears throat> seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. This is new. Abimelech says, what are you doing? Verse 29. What does this mean? He said, Verse 30. Abraham says, you shall take these seven ewe lambs, from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug the well. This is kind of like the story of Peace Child. Here, take these. Raise my own sheep. There's a bond here. Abraham sets aside seven very valuable ewe lambs as a living witness that we have a contract. And whenever you look at those lambs growing up and doing what lambs do, bah, <laughs> bah, They're a little louder than that, aren't they? Yeah. Remember me. Keep your word. But wait, there's one more witness here. There's one more, verse 31. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba because there uh, there the two of them had made an oath. The name of the well was another witness of the transaction. Every time you said Beersheba, you're saying well of oath. This is the well of oath, Beersheba. That's what that means. Both men swore to uphold the covenant and the problem was settled. Ta-da! You see, this entire transaction actually involved three elements. There was a sacrifice, cut the animals, walk through. There was a witness, and then there was a promise. And you find these same elements in God's covenant with us through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's outlined in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 through 18. You can read it later. But first, there's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, verses 1 through 14. Then there's the witness of the Holy Spirit within the believer, verse 15. And finally, the promise of God's word, verse 16 through 18. I ask you, how do you know you're saved? Because the Bible tells me so. Abraham's covenant with Abimelech only guaranteed possession of a well with water that sustained life. But God's covenant with his people guarantees that we have living water that gives us everlasting life to all who will trust the Savior. But wait, there's more. Planting. Look at verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord the everlasting God. This tree, or maybe grove, is also part of the covenant. It's a witness of the promises of God. Every time he looked at the tree or the grove, he'd say, I remember that covenant. I remember those promises. As he built the oasis, Abraham was not merely interested in the ecology of water and trees, but rather he was giving a witness of what God had done for him. Do you remember the things that God has done for you? Have you set up markers? He had gone through a difficult experience in life, and he had left some blessings behind for others. See, that tree would go on and on. He's like the pilgrim described in Psalm 84. Psalm 84 who passes through the valley of Baca, or the valley of weeping, and he makes this place of springs that's a blessing for others down the road. It's a a principle God gives us. But still don't miss the phrase, there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. You see, this means worship. He's in a place of worship. You could follow Abraham's journey by the, the wells he dug, and by the altars he set up. It's the story of Abraham's life he was not ashamed to build altars in the presence of his neighbors or to offer worship in the presence of his neighbors. And once again, by ways of ups and downs uh, experienced by Abraham, he was able actually to learn something new about God. There's a new name of God. El um, Elyon, God Most High, uh, we know about that, but the everlasting God, El Olam, it's the first time it's used. Through the falling down and getting back up, he learned something new about God. He had a new, new name for God. We've had El, uh, we've had El Shaddai, Almighty God, El most uh, God Most High, but now he has this new name to worship. And this is important as we go through life, that we learn more and more about God so we can worship him better and better. There's always something more about God to be revealed around the next corner. You see, there's some truths in life and theology that can only be learned through experience, through going through the walk. So what an an encouragement to know that the everlasting God was there. You see, wells would disappear, trees would be cut down, um, lambs would grow up and and eventually die, Uh, altars would crumble, trees would perish, but the everlasting God will always remain. We have the everlasting God. This everlasting God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And he had given them the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. As Abraham faced the coming years, he knew that God would not change. And you can know that too. Do you know and worship the everlasting God? Have you been introduced yet? Now, one last thing I will quit. It's called waiting. Waiting. Verse 34. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Some of you have been doing something for many, many, many days waiting. God gets it. The many days of this verse could be as much as 10 or 15 years because Isaac was a young man when he accompanied. Abraham up Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. You'll get that later. It must have been a good time for Abraham and Sarah raising uh, young Isaac, watching him grow. Precious in their sight, very happy time. Little did they know the great test that would lay before them. Some bad stuff was coming, but God was preparing them so they would be ready for the next test down the road. So, have you stumbled? Has your sin tripped you up maybe more than once? Well, this is for you. God includes the events in the pages of Scripture for our good. He preserves them for our lessons. And if today some sinful behavior or some sinful relationship has come to mind, it's a good day today to deal with it. Make a choice. Take a step. I like what the one guy said, when you've, when you've dug yourself into the hole, the first rule is stop digging. Stop digging. Don't think you have to go it alone. There's this church full of people here to help you, to, to love on you, to equip you for your substantial purpose that's down the next road. Do, do reach out. I mean, Gunner publishes his phone number for goodness sakes. Call the guy. Call other friends here. No one here is better than you. You're in a safe place here. So if you're going through some challenges, if you put yourself in a little communal living, put yourself in a box, can't take the risks, that's not from the Lord. If you find yourself under the loving discipline of the Lord, don't waste the opportunity to make a new start. Repent of the sin and then get back up. And if you're in that waiting time, and waiting And waiting. We learn from Abraham that those are the times to establish markers. Markers of God's faithfulness, markers that tell others about the everlasting faithfulness of God to you. That's what those times are for. Times of waiting are times to explore what it means to worship God, to just spend time alone with God, to get to know who God is. It does not come naturally the worship of God, but it is immensely beneficial. Okay, before you rush off to start stacking chairs and eating donuts, let's spend some time with God in prayer. Heavenly Father, difficult passage. Somewhat dry, but deeply personal. Lord, you know the place where we've stumbled You know the times that you have reached out and protected us from the bad thing. You know the consequences that you have covered and those that we live with every day. Father, you do not have us live with these consequences because you're disappointed with us or because you're mad at us, but to drive us closer to you. Lord, we ask that as the everlasting God, you would take the challenges that we have walked through in life, And you would somehow use those challenges to grow us towards Christ-likeness and that you would still help us to have a witness to others. And Father, for those who who are waiting right now, Father, waiting and waiting, O Lord, fill us with your presence and your everlasting joy and help us to be an encouragement to others. In Jesus' name, amen.